Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and I'm excited to have a fellow YPOR and my first female executive finally on the call here this morning, very early morning from New York City. This is Stacy Ellister. Welcome to the podcast, Stacy. Good morning, Marcus. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we finally could uh, connect. Yeah, I know. I'm excited and I'm looking forward to digging deep into your amazing career um, and talking more tennis. I had uh, Ryan Schüttler recently on it, on it. And of course, that from, was from a player perspective. So I'm really uh, looking forward to digging deeper. Tennis was always my first love as sport, too. So uh, I can talk tennis all day. Um, but before we get into all that, let me quickly um, introduce you a bit further for some of the folks who might not know you that well. Um, so your career, you're originally from Canada, and uh, your career started in Canada with Tennis Canada uh, for quite a long period, for 15 years. Uh, you uh, worked with Tennis Canada on, on many events, and we'll probably go in that a bit more later, Rogers Cup, etc., uh, and that where most people would probably recognize you from, um, of course, is your... Uh, near tenure, um, tenure with the WTA, the, the Women's Tour, um, both as initially president and later on chairman and CEO. And uh, of course, you've done an amazing job there. And we'll definitely dig into that. And of course, you're right now the CEO of the USTA, which is the host of the US Open. Um, and that will be the other part of the conversation of um, you guys have recently announced that uh, the tournament will go on. And therefore, there will be some interesting topics there. Um, and I'd like to congratulate you. I believe you are the first tournament, female tournament director in the history of the U.S. Open after 140 years, about time, I would say. So congratulations to I that. I think so, yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I believe that was fairly recent. They announced. So that's that's all good stuff. Um, but let's get back to where you started uh, before we jump uh, too far ahead here. So please tell us a bit about how you got into tennis, why tennis, you know, and, and all that good stuff. Sure. Um I was in the eighth grade growing up on the border of Niagara Falls, Canada and Niagara Falls, New York, just to give people mm. a, a sense. So living right on the border. Nice. And uh, <clears throat> there was uh, a provincial program from the Ontario Tennis Association where they were giving out scholarships to, to eighth graders mm -hmm. um, for the summer to encourage participation. And so I got a racket uh, six weeks of lessons at the community club and a membership at the community club. Right. And so from that, I never left tennis. Wow. <laughs> so it, it, it changed my life. Right, and everything I have in my, in my professional life has, is, is, has come from the sport, which is a huge driver for me when we talk about, you know, what's your passion, what's your purpose, Yes. For me, one it really primarily is using professional tennis assets to generate the funds to be able to promote and grow the game to change kids' lives. Right. I think when we think about uh, how sport can change uh, kids' lives, um, whether that be all the life lessons that, that youth learn um, outside of the classroom, they are invaluable in life and in business. Um, from strategy to, to winning to losing, et cetera. Yes. And it uh, is, a, <clears throat> is a high data point. Y young girls who are physically active, uh, it is healthy for their self-esteem, builds a teamwork, and as well, those that are in the competitive uh, stream of sport, mm -hmm. um, you know, more than 50% of leaders, female leaders, have played competitive sport. Oh, yeah. And the few that we do have as Fortune 500 CEOs did play competitive sport. And I like know, the statistics it, it there. That's it great. can provide a great career on and off the court. And my journey was off the court. I was a, a good little club player. And I started teaching when I was 16. Right. And so that was the beginning of, of general management um, because you learned communication skills, how to build your junior program. Uh -huh. And just from there, it kind of never stopped. And it was then a stepping stone after I graduated. Um, I read uh, What They Don't Teach You at the Harvard Business School. And by uh, Mark McCormick, <laughs> founder of sports marketing. Sorry. And I really thought I wanted to be an agent. All right. <laughs> I'm, okay. say, I'm, gl I'm glad that that wasn't the path. <laughs> Well, I had a few agents on the on on the podcast before. So it is a hard path, uh, especially hard I path. would think 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 now. So, I started at the OTA, running around the, the province, um, 
giving free tennis lessons at community clubs, ironically, the dots connected to the, yeah. to the journey, to the entry point, yeah, nice. and um, selling membership, and then I was head of player development, and I wanted to work at Tennis Canada. Right. And I knocked on their door three times, and uh, three times they, uh, they, they, didn't, uh, they didn't select me, but um, I was born with some pretty good gifts <laughs> from my grandmothers and my mother, and uh, perseverance genes, resilience genes, uh, no means yes uh, in my mindset. Right, uh, it right, just right. means it's, it's not yes right now. So um, I, I did get that. in, and that was a 15-year uh, where I did run the, uh, the the Rogers Cup Canadian Open. Mm-hmm. And I was in charge of uh, sales and marketing for both the Toronto and, and the Montreal events. And that's where the, the profile and the opportunity of the international stage came where I represented the Tennis Canada at ATP meetings, WTA meetings, right. ITF. I started to get on the board of, of WTA, and, and they came knocking in 2001. Mm-hmm. And my husband and I, uh, we were in the midst of adopting uh, our first child from uh, Siberia, and so that right. just wasn't the right time. And, and we adopted our second child in 2004, and then in 2005, <clears throat> uh, Larry Scott joined me or asked me to join him and um, yeah, to be his president. Down, right? And I did, so that ended the 15 years at Tennis Canada. Uh, we moved to the States. That was big. It's just yeah. us here living in, uh, in St. Petersburg, uh, Florida, uh-huh. leaving the family uh, up behind with just the, the two kids. Right. And here we are today. And uh, 10 years later, um, you know, everything that, uh, that we did at the WTA, um, you know, um, from growth, um, the business grew, prize money grew 100% for the athletes, and then that was—it's almost—it's almost 30 years of really kind of working in tennis. So yes. I thought I at that point I was—I was—I was finished with tennis. That—that uh, that was a good run, and I was on a path um, to actually go and teach at an MBA uh, school, take over as the director of a, a sports management MBA okay. uh, program at a university do some consulting, mm-hmm. do some charity work uh, for youth sport, and maybe uh, take a breath. <laughs> right. But uh, the US- USDA came knocking. Okay. gave me about three months, and um, and they put it out there. You know, Stace, we, we don't have anyone to run pro tennis, and no one knows pro tennis more from a federation perspective, a pro perspective, the linkage between player development, and, um, you know, if you're the little kid who watched the U.S. Open and in Tennis Canada, I had the U.S. Open poster. I tried to emulate how they presented the sport from mm. a product perspective. And you're given the opportunity to, um, to oversee the largest annual sporting event in the world. Um, as long as we didn't have to move, um, we were good to do it. So four years uh, now at the USTA and, and I'm having a... A great time you know we have to love what we do yes and, absolutely uh you know well, i'm a lifer i'm a lifer in tennis even though i've tried <laughs> a variety of different <laughs> times to, to go on a different path um the diversification yeah. has come through the portfolio and well, well and it's still it's, it's, um, a, it's a good spot to be day. absolutely yeah. Uh, yeah. we have we actually represented the us usta for about eight years from 2004 to 2012 we represented the tv rights here in asia obviously that was before your time um yes. so i've been to the event several times um sat in the uh, uh in the in the suites and stuff and uh, it's amazing i have to admit uh, obviously had a bit of a chance to take a look behind the scene uh, being a partner of the tw- of the event uh, so yeah, I, I love the U.S. Open, uh, and, and we'll incredible. come back to that. But um, yes, I wanted okay. to spend a little bit of time with, in, at the WTA first. Um, as you mentioned, and I've read at least, uh, there was uh, in the number used in the in the article was billions of dollars of new revenue coming in during your period of t- during your time. Um, talk us a bit about talk, tell us a bit what happened. What were the changes you made, which you th- you know felt this is really you? Doing it versus, of course, also having you know amazing players, maybe the Sharapovas and the Williams sisters and others coming online, which I'm sure had a bit to do with as well. So, love to hear the, your perspective on that. Well, I think it starts similar to to any industry. <clears throat> it's the foundation of the business. Uh, you have your core markets, emerging mark, uh, mature markets, 
Mm-hmm. And um, where are the, the new markets for growth? Right. And we opened an office in 2009 in Beijing. Okay. And that was all part of a, <clears throat> a, a structural change on the calendar, which you could look at as sort of product. And we put uh-huh. one of our largest four events in Beijing. Oh, and right. when we were working with the government, <clears throat> we said um, that we wanted to have an office uh, in Beijing. And that was a playbook out of out of David Stern's uh, mm-hmm. vision yes. on how to grow the MBA, that you have to actually that. have to be on the ground. Mm-hmm. And tennis was an aspirational sport. It didn't take a lot of um, physical land, uh, government officials played it. It was it, it is gender neutral. Yes. So uh, it was a welcome sport um, within uh, within China at the time. Mm. And so we, 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 we established that office. And and by the time I left in 2015, yes. um, you know, we had sort of two events in China. And when I left, we had six to seven. Wow. Yeah, that's, and, that's significant growth. Well, obviously, you also had Lina that kind of helped. And then, uh, and then you had, <laughs> then you had obviously, you know, we had our our Lina, and but you can't build any business and any tennis tournament on one player. Sure. But she obviously was a catalyst and an inspiration then for the growth of of tennis, the growth of mm. women's tennis in APAC overall. Sure. Yes, because she was Asia's Grand Slam champion. Everyone. That's right. um, adorned her and she's obviously the national hero in china so that was good luck but we have to be ready and optimized um to yes. take advantage of, of that good luck <clears throat> so was that and, your your decision to open the the office there was that was lena already sort of on the horizon or she, she was, was on the horizon near, but she, she was at she that didn't time. okay she she didn't win um i think so Roland Garros in 2011 correct yeah. and that had just sent it off the charts so uh, with china being a footprint um then uh, further growth in Asia Pacific, and we um, we have what are called the World the WTA World Tour Finals, mm-hmm. and that event prior to 2009 hadn't made any money. We were actually having to pay mm-hmm. uh, promoters to host it, and it's it's like the Super Bowl of the of the season yep. for um, for the WTA. That's right. So we. Um, we were able to do a partnership with Qatar, and in 2009 to 11, and then 2012 okay. to, to 14, 13 with uh, with Turkey, and right. w- that was a game and changer. It, and it, it also was in Singapore for a while. It, I, and I then the years. So it, yeah, and then there was the real transformation with Singapore and our right. partnership with um, with the tourism group and and sport. Yeah. Um, Singapore sports sport. Hop, sport. Yeah. Yeah, and then it was it was transformational in that they shared our vision for a 10-day sport and entertainment event mm. with all of the things that all events had have uh, today you know I really tell everyone I'm in the entertainment business right and my genre of entertainment is world-class tennis and the world-class on-site experience where food and retail at the highest level is part of uh, of the offering. Mm-hmm. So, um, and everything from over up, and you got we built more days of content. Um, we built um, a rising star where youth, fourteen to sixteen year olds from twenty one countries had the opportunity in their own countries to um, earn the right to come to the World Tour Finals for the WTA Rising Stars and yeah, play right. on the same courts as um, as the stars and mingle uh, with the stars. Mm-hmm. We had an under-21 championships for the Rising right. Stars of, uh, yeah, it was the future stars and then the Rising mm-hmm. Stars were under-21. And so again, building more content. Um, and then there mm-hmm. was music and galas. And I'm very proud of that event. It was an incredible partnership. Uh, with with Singapore, and then we opened up an office in Singapore, <laughs> and that right. also became a, a footprint. And I know I don't have the the right the date right data point, but it, at the end of the day, I think there's now 27 events in Asia Pacific. So we, it's very important for the sport in in obviously North America, uh, very in, important in Europe, mm-hmm. and then obviously now to have the footprint 
in Asia Pacific, it is a foundation. So when certain economies are ebbing and flowing, um, there's now much more diversity and tennis is truly a global sport. So the footprint, uh, prize money rose on the WTA, WTA tournaments 100% during my tenure. Do you, what was um, the numbers? Uh, because I don't have the numbers either. Do you roughly, it went from how much to what is it now? Yeah, I don't, I don't have that. It's, you know, but in the multiple millions, obviously. Yeah. Um, I think total between now Grand Slams and WTAs is probably about 160 million and the slams make up about 50% of it. Um, okay. But it was, it was, in, it was very material. And, and then, you know, the WTA is, is made up of 50% player ownership and 50% tournaments. It's not like other leagues where it might be a player association um, or as an NBA and, and North American franchises, these are owner and then there's unions um, for, for the athletes. So this is a 50-50. So tournaments are wholly owned. They own their, if you want to think of it as a franchise. Mm -hmm. And also during that time period, asset values grew 100%. And we um, we monetized the uh, the media rights and created WTA Media with aggregation of content. Media that rights was were perform, right? Didn't it? the deal was, that time was perform, it, right? Or? It was it was perform, and that right. was a that was a big play, and we'd done yeah. the RFP and. Um, I remember that. At the end of the day, they, they, it was a strategic uh, play for them, uh, tied to their business growth. And you know, the one thing that women's sports needs is oxygen, and that oxygen is cash. Yeah, and, <laughs> that's um, true. You know, it's you have that old sort of you'd rather be market by market, um, trying to control your destiny, but um, doing it with a guarantee and doing it. Um, pan regional with that party at you know for for us as from a business perspective at that time uh, it was it was really really important for financial stability so right. uh, yeah and I do remember it I'm not sure whether it's still running I believe it um, it is yeah they're working through is, some yeah. things yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously been a, a big big change up in in media yes uh, sure. in data rights uh, perform doesn't have the data rights but the, the data rights are now um, there's an RFP going for for the data rights. Um, Interesting. And then the yeah. tour, the final actually moved to China now, right? Uh, if I recall, Singapore. Where is yeah. It? Shenzhen, so again, or? it always gets right to Shenzhen. So you just yeah, you've, Shenzhen, you've kind yeah. of built the the business, and yeah. and they did a half a billion dollar deal for ten years. Yeah, um, I, I heard some of the sure. numbers both in Singapore and in China, and they're significant for sure. Which yeah, is amazing and prize money is prize money has gone. Um, to fourteen million dollars, um, it's actually yeah. more than uh, than the ATP World Tour Finals. So we'll see. Yeah, um, you're, you're yeah, beating the yeah. you're beating the man there, in, in some of those instances. Now, before I want to I want to move on to USTA, but uh, before that, I, I want to talk a bit about the players. How do you see uh, so that generation, which you know came through you or was there with you? Um, how much were they different than previous generation, or was it? You think you know there's always a star, and and it's just a question of who it is at that time. Yes, I think we have cycles, mm -hmm. whether it's men's tennis or women's tennis, and um, you know from the, the the founding of the WTA in 1973, you know Billie Jean founded yeah. it, but she really passed the baton to Chrissy and Martina, yep. and they helped to really build the foundation, and then it came along Graf and Celis, right. and then came along. Uh, Lindsay Davenport, and then came along Serena, Venus, Kleisters, Hennen, and now we're into the new millennium. And um, we just had that, we've had this incredible journey of what we, what I believe, and others have said it doesn't really, but I believe Marcus, um, you know, those of the greats in the sport that Serena Williams is the greatest of all time. Yep. And, um, what she's been able to achieve in this modern era, um, not just on the titles and the longevity and to come back from you know, you know, dying a, well, maybe a couple times of complications with the birth is yes. extraordinary. Yes. And uh, then, you know, just the whole with Venus, you know, also multi Grand Slam champion. The story is incredible. Yeah, the sisters, sure. And so uh, we've had that journey and, and now 
Uh, we're in the midst of transition. We have some amazing uh, young stars, and, and you yeah. know, we've got the Osaka. Halleps, the Ash Barties, Osaka. Yeah. Uh, we've got the Wonder uh, Young Woman, uh, Coco Goff, and yes. there's a host coming. So it just it, there's always someone. We just don't know who it's going to be. Right. And we all sort of go, oh, the sport is going to miss when they leave. You know, what's going to happen to the sport? I can remember it in the Cellus and the Graf days when, when they leave. And yes. the next generations will come. And what we do know is that each generation propels the next generation to further greatness. Mm. Um, whether we, we saw Martina transform at, um, the athleticism and right. Kim Kleisters and, and uh, the Williams sisters then took it to a new level. Absolutely. And uh, we just, they continue to be fine tuned as high performance human beings on the court to get that extra edge. Just like a, if we think about Formula One, uh, everything mm -hmm. that, that we, that they do to get that little extra edge. Because at the end of the day, it's only the matter of a couple, a couple points, a couple of those true. pressure points. Yes. Uh, when you look at, when you look at, a, at the scoreboard, might not tell the real, let's say six, four, six, four, but. You know, could have been very, very close. You know, just, just yeah. very, very close. Oh, yeah. So, oh. Let, let's switch heads. USTA. Um, that obviously means men and women. Um, so let's talk a bit about your role there. And uh, and really, the first thing I'd love to talk about, of course, is you recently announced that the U.S. Open will happen, uh, 24th to the August to the 13th of September. Which uh, is that the original date, or did you move it a little bit? Uh, those are the U.S. Open original dates. These are, okay. Um, that is yeah, the original date, right? main draw starts on, the, on on August 31st, yes, right. through September 13th. So the difference for, is is we will not have U.S. Open qualifying. Right, okay. And that has been replaced with the Western and Southern Open that is normally played um, two weeks before the U.S. Open in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And we've moved that event as part of the centralized operations plan to mitigate risk and to provide the athletes with competitive opportunities prior to the slam with the highest amount of prize money and ranking points. Right. And um, so it's a, it's a four-week journey for us. Uh, players opt in if they want to play the Western and Southern Open. They opt in if they want to play the U.S. Open, to be honest. They can come when they want. Right. Um, but we're open for business on August the 16th. And so we'll yeah. take that from the 16th to the 13th of September. And, and that was actually my first question on it. Um, how do, you know, what's the opportunity for the players to prepare? Or, you know, besides the tournament, which you just mentioned, will there be other lead up events or is it literally some of them where you're going to call, you know, walk up cold, so to speak? Yeah, look, um, we know any athlete um, cannot, doesn't matter which sport we're talking about. They need to train. And they do need these pre-competitive yes. um, opportunities because training and match play, you know, we just know the intensity is, is very different. You know, yes. you know, there's something like the NHL is thinking about playoff hockey is at an intensity level unlike regular season. So how do the guys physically and mentally get to that space? Yes. So it's, going, it's the exact same parallel for our athletes. So announcing, and, you know, I think, Marcus, is for clarity, we have announced – uh, that we uh, have an intent to play, um, okay. and, and and all engines are are in full steam ahead now to prepare. Mm -hmm. uh, we had needed to give notice to the athletes that based on what we know today, yeah. based on uh, these um, this medical and operational plan, we feel uh, confident that we have mitigated risk for the health and well-being of all. So that's mm -hmm. a signal for us to get operational and, and right. finish getting ready to for them to get ready. And, mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, some of them, many of them were training already. And now we see, um, um, some exhibitions, some have been in Europe, some, um, uh, are happening here in the United States. Uh, Charleston just, just finished a 16 woman event. So that's okay. kind of the start. And I think uh, we have what's called World Team Tennis here in the U.S. Many players will play that. It's in a, a three-week uh, window mm -hmm. in July. And then um, there'll be a men's Washington tournament the week before um, Western and Southern Open. 
that again will be be held at the USGA Billie Jean King National Tennis Center, and then they'll have Cincy. Um, right, right. And again, so there opening is, there is some warm up to it. Yes. Yes, yeah, provided those pre-competitive now, opportunities. Now, you mentioned uh, you made the announcement that you will, well, you were trying to host it, I guess, or, yes, or the, yes. that's the plan. Um, and, I, and I'm assuming you, what you mean with it is that oh, what still happens till then, therefore, there's still a chance, I guess, that the event might not happen. Is that sort of the, uh, the asterisk on it? Yeah, I think all of us in sport who are attempting to return to play and or are returning to play, um, we all know um, that we're walking on eggshells every day yes. uh, because ultimately uh, there's one thing we we cannot control uh, in 100% certainty, and that's um, that's ultimately the virus. We can mitigate risk in the world, in the bubble world that we create, um, but there are environmental factors, societal factors where uh, if – if the virus uh, materially uh, spikes, um, government officials and or ourselves, where we, we deem it's no longer um, that we can mitigate risk for the sure. health and well-being for all, and that is a fundamental principle. It's the number one. We have three principles, but for me, it's number one, number two, number three. Mm-hmm. Then uh, we just we will not be able to proceed, and but, that may uh, that may come uh, four weeks from now. It may come. Uh, before the day before game day, it may come during the tournament. So those would be things that um, we all had to make those that risk assessment and value and financial uh, uh, assessment prior to the decision to go. So we know eyes wide open. Uh, it's what we know today. Things uh, are on track. The plan the plan has been approved by um, the USGA Medical Advisory Group with world-class leading infectious disease specialists. It's been approved now by the New York State governor. Mm -hmm. I make this comment also, a lot of people say, well, why New York? You know, that was the epicenter of the virus. And for those listeners internationally, uh, I think those are very fair questions. And the athletes asked asked the question as well. Mm -hmm. The one thing that we can uh, pay tribute to to all of the New Yorkers, particularly the, the, the first responders and all the health healthcare workers and everyone who put themselves on the line uh, to care um, for for everyone in, across New York State, uh, it's been exceptional. And the governor has been mm-hmm. very, very disciplined to be uh, deliberate and slow um, before opening up. Uh, the economy, so right. you know, yeah, that, New York, that's what it appears. York, he, he gets a lot of airtime on TV. <laughs> yes, New York State and New York City just started, you know, we know as phase two, right. and uh, there's something called the RT value, and that mm-hmm. measures the spread of the virus. Correct. It's measured hourly uh, across each state, wow. and anything above one dot is dot zero is is uh, where you ultimately don't want to be. It just means Correct. for every one of us that has the virus, we're, we're spreading it. Yes. And below is trending where, where we should be. So New York in the epicenter was a four was above four. Wow. And uh, for the past uh, several weeks, it has either been number four in the country, number three in the country, it's below one, and other states are now starting to spike back up. California, California. Hmm. Florida, um, and so it, it, it's going in the right direction. So again, Marcus, it's what we know today um, that that uh, gives us the confidence that um, uh, we can implement the plan. And it also is a heavy lift by the athletes. And I think that's where right. we had yeah. a lot of the a lot of the conversation the next, with them. Yeah. The next question here uh, in my mind, of course, is uh, your tournament is a global event, um, which means you have athletes from all over the world coming in. Um, and that's the the additional challenge, right? You don't just uh, play on people who are already in the United States. Um, what will be the restrictions there or how much have you been able to work with the government to say, hey, anyone who, I guess, does certain things and comes with certain clearance uh, will be allowed in and therefore then will be housed and quarantined or whatever format that is. Uh, what was the process there? And, and to some degree, I guess, it's, is it the U.S. government or who, who needs to make, give the green light on that level? Sure. Uh, we we have upwards of 75 to 80% of the the playing uh, competitors, they are international. 
So that is a dimension that the majority of sports uh, are not dealing um, with. And we take uh, very seriously the implications of athletes being able to get in and athletes being able to get out. Um, And so it is quite complex uh, on both sides. And um, at the moment, we have confidence again by speaking with governments that it is going to be possible for the athletes to come in and to leave. Now, on the U.S. side, on May 22nd, the federal government, through the Division of Homeland Security, made a proclamation for all um, international sports men and women, their coaches, tours, they could get into the country. That, that sport was of national interest. It was important to the economy. And we saw that happen right around when PGA Tour was, was uh, in the final days of, of final, finalizing their plans. And, and, we, and we know the NBA and NHL and MLB. Mm-hmm. So international yeah. athletes have been coming in uh, to the country for well over a month. And they're going to their right. training centers. And um, so the federal government has given us assurances and direct um, contact to the federal government. There's a process that we're working now with both tours to submit a list of all the athletes that we anticipate will come in and uh, who they will bring. And uh, we'll then submit that uh, to the government um, by, by month, months, by the, by the end of, the, end of this month. So that's how it will work. And then, you know, literally they will come in and they'll come into the U.S. open world, which in essence, uh, think of it like an athlete. How does that look like? Yeah, like an athlete's village. How does the U.S. open world look? Oh, you're going to set up an athlete's village, basically. Yeah, and our village will start in two centralized hotels where they will have everything they need um, from Mm -hmm. medical to physio, fitness, recovery, entertainment, food service. And then there'll be shuttle buses to uh, the USGA Billie Jean King National Tennis Center, which is where they will train. Um, And they'll have all the same services. And um, the player experience will be be enhanced on site for them to, whether it's uh, creating a football pitch for them, the basketball court, golf simulations, gaming centers, outdoor cafes, all of that then will also be on the grounds. And what type of testing will you be doing? Uh, is there almost like a daily test routine or before, after kind of what, what is it, uh, how, you, how the athletes, what can they expect coming? At, the, at this time, uh, based on the guidance of the medical uh, advisors, um, the testing will be when they arrived at the hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will be um, a PCR um, mm-hmm. nasal swab test at the moment that yep. might change right. Right. The, the lab will be right there in the hotel mm-hmm. uh, right. once they've completed their their test um, they'll be given their room key and um, they'll be able to go to their room and then they'll be asked to stay in their room until um, uh, we have the results of their tests okay uh, at the moment uh, this sort of two to three hour window is um, expected for this particular test. Again, that may change. Um, And if, you know, if it's a negative test, then they'll be tested again within 24 hours and they'll have already been isolated. So the whole key on all of this is the mitigation of risk. And, um, you know, before they arrive, you know, we, you know, we'll be asking them through their pre-screening that they should be uh, isolating and be, being mindful of their responsibility to their fellow athletes and themselves. Um, yes. You know, you know, if they're at home. You know, stay in your home. Coming. Train, yes. and you know, you shouldn't be going out to nightclubs and restaurants. And just be mindful of it. And um, yeah, yeah. Have, get a COVID test before you leave. And um, and then um, so that when they arrive, we we've got a benchmark that you know. Um, you know, they didn't have it then, and then they're getting another another check, you know, three, four days from when they uh, had that test. And if they do have it, then they shouldn't get on the plane. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, we've done a bit of work on it as well. We, we, we put together an entire series of programs, uh, products and services for events like yourself um, to help from test kits to scanners at the you know, gate, et cetera. And, and, and the, what I've seen is really the combination of the, uh, um, the blood test, which is the, uh, yes. uh, the antibody test together with the PCR. That's almost the, the perfect combo because they do detect obviously different things, which I'm sure yes. you would already yes. know. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. So, um, so that's uh, interesting. I mean, and, and you mentioned, uh, you know, not partying clubbing. I mean, today I think the news broke about Djokovic, uh, having been infected and several other players, um, around his tour. And clearly at least again, what, what the stories look like, uh, they really didn't take, take, uh, good care of it. Um, and did exactly all the things you shouldn't be doing. So, very bad example and probably not a great, uh, you know, publicity for the sport in general. So let's hope he recovers and, uh, and gets well quickly to, uh, hopefully do come, uh, come back to the open. Uh, what's your thought on that <laughs> short, short one? Yeah, look, I, I share your comment that, I, you know, we hope that all of the athletes, um, recover well, um, and those who, who, who now have been infected by, by COVID, um, through, through that particular um, exhibition, and, and you know, I think what it uh, it does demonstrate to the athletes, because everyone has a different lens uh, of COVID. Um, mm. Some, um, you know, are quite nervous about it. Some are taking it quite seriously, and others are uh, more casual about it. And there's nothing casual about COVID. It's real. Definitely, yes. And I agree. Um, I think we're, we're all returning to work in various and, and to turning to society at different rates and at different comfort levels. And ultimately, the athletes are going to need to decide and they'll need to decide sort of that two to three weeks before. But what can we do as we try to open up our offices um, in a traditional sense and open up professional sport? And that is, um, you know, to, to, to have uh, the mitigation plan to minimize risk, and that is that is obviously the medical side, the screening side, the testing side, having the isolation in, in, in place should one mm. or more athlete test positive. We just had the experience last weekend on the PGA Tour. Second, right. it's just, it is critical on how we build it. And so we talk about, you know, the, the centralized, you know, keeping everyone uh, in the bubble and then how you build yep. the bubble. You know, we'll have a multi-tiered system, three tiers. Tier one, mm -hmm. those are those interacting with players and limiting the number. Number two is they may interact. For example, that could be food service, security, um, yep. the on-court camera people. And the, and the third tier would be those that should not interact with players. You know, we'll have 700 broadcast staff uh, working to distribute the pictures um, throughout the world. And they'll never, they'll be in a broadcast center and they'll have their own physical dist physical distancing and PPE protocols. Mm -hmm. And lastly, then how we, how we um, lay out the spacing, you know, whether that, you know, say right. if the dining room normally can seat 250, it'll be 125. Uh, where, where are the other seats going to be? Uh, a lot of outdoor cafes, um, right. food service now will be, you know, they'll have an app and a QR code mm. and they'll just right. go on, they'll order their food and they'll go to, right. a, to a station to pick up their, their single serve. And they'll all have to wear PPE. Um, they'll yeah. have to wear their masks and we just have to keep yeah. our six feet. CDC, yeah. uh, you know, we're learning every day. And if, if you keep yourself distanced and you keep your mask on um, and you're not in a consistent exposure environment for 15 minutes, the risk mm. is very, very minimal. And, you know, stay in your exposure group uh, versus, you know, you can still have conversations six feet away, but people have to be will, mindful will you of have, it. Will you have ball boys and girls on the court or how do, is that uh, something maybe you've taken everything, away? Everything is going to be uh, limited uh, across all right. operations and competition. Yeah. So we do have a limited crew of ball persons. They will not be kids. Uh, they will be right. eight, 18 plus. And um, on the outer courts, we'll have three, one at the net and one on each end. They will have uh, a goggle on and they will have um, uh, some type of, of mask and they will have okay. gloves. 
They'll keep their six yeah. feet, and they won't no. interact with the athletes other than to roll the ball to them. No longer be involved in any handling of towels, water, right. bananas. You, you know, yeah. Yeah. All, they, that that won't. They will not be uh, interacting with the players that way. Amazing. And and officials. Um, we have uh, 16 uh, competition courts. Uh, two of them, Arthur Ashe, our main stadium, and Louis Armstrong, um, the second stadium. Uh, those will be presented, as we know today, with linesmen. Again, uh, they'll have some type of face shield. Uh, they'll have their goggles. They will have um, master gloves. And um, again, they're in this the. It's going to be a very different, different looking U.S. Open here for sure. Yeah. Wow, and then we'll be there. using Hawkeye, <laughs> Hawkeye Live technology, where uh, that replaces linesmen, uh, lines people. I'm yeah. sorry on the on the outer courts. And so that'll be in, that'll be innovative and, and a new trial. And. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I love that. You know, we could spend probably another hour talking <laughs> the, about the SOP because uh, it's obviously I'm sure so much has gone in there. But I also conscious of our time here. I know you have a call coming up in a bit. So I, but then I wanted a few more other points I wanted to kind of um, get into. So I was sorry to interrupt you there on this thought. Two things I wanted to touch on. Spectators, which is obviously such a huge thing at the US Open normally. Um, you know, they're really the heart and, and, and you know, life of, of the event. Um, and obviously you won't have any. Uh, and I, but I recall, and the number maybe is wrong, so please correct me there. Um, your spectator, the average spectator is at a, at a previous year's Open is what, 700, 800,000 people uh, who are going through the gate. Is that correct in that ballpark? Or yeah, last year, last year over the, the two weeks of main draw and the one week of qualifying that we now call fan week, again, uh, we could spend a lot of time on, again, how to grow yeah. content and, and the offering there, but um, 850 Fifty thousand. Yeah, so so I wasn't so far the, off. Yeah, it's the largest yeah. so that's annual, a huge, uh, the largest annual a, sport entertainment event in the world because it's annual. Yeah, correct. Yeah, it's huge numbers, which means also huge revenue, not just the tickets they buy. You know, they buy the hot dog and you know the ice cream and everything. So, um, and saying and, and deciding, you are obviously not going to let anyone in. Um, uh, that's a huge decision. How did you know this short version of how did you guys decide on that? It was just um, was it the government saying, look, you can have the event, but you can't let spectators in, or was it more well, how was the decision made on that? I think we could come back to sort of the, the guiding principle of um, how do we mitigate risk and right. um, health and well being for all, and that includes all. Normally, we have 11,000 people credentialed working at the U.S. Open. It's like its own city right. for yeah. um, for a month, and plus as we as we build build it, uh, and it's just not possible. Um, you've right. got mass mass transit, so we were already down the path of no fans on site, and certainly the New York governor uh, I think has released his protocols for all sport where at the moment no fans right. in stadiums will be allowed so in, in um, general but we we were already in that um, operational uh, build a business model to do that and we you know it's not an easy decision um, there's no other stadium in the world like Arthur Ashe with 24,000 yes. loud New Yorkers uh, if there's a yes. silver lining I'm, I'm not going to have someone call me to say Stacy uh, the players can't hear the umpire. Can you quiet them down? <laughs> oh yeah, I'll get right on that. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll tell them to be quiet. No problem. <laughs> and, and that is a, that's a great segue into uh, my next question. Are you doing anything uh, that's say unique, interesting? You can already share from a technology point of view. Like I'll give you an example. Bundesliga, my uh, my uh, f German football league. Yes, yes. Uh, they they had on the international feed or even the local feed. They pumping in um, actually you know uh, crowd sounds, right? Um, and so this is obviously artificial crowd sounds. Um, you know you have some stadiums now. They they obviously dressing up the uh, the stands with fan images or other things, uh, cutouts, etc. I mean you've seen you know I'm sure you've seen all those examples. Is there anything interesting you can share with us of what you guys are planning to do, or is it going to be a bit of a surprise? Well, I think one of the uh, the benefits we have is that we're now we now get to learn from the Bundesliga, um, yes. PGA Tour, <laughs> and others because they've gone first. And I must yeah. say, um, a silver lining from COVID, the entire sports industry has united to share mm -hmm. 
because um, we all want to return to play if it's safe in our countries. And um, and everyone has been incredibly collaborative. And, and I just have to give a shout out to Christian C. Ford at the Bundesliga. From day one, mm-hmm. he has been all in to support all of us and um, right. openly sharing. And he's been a, a, you know, also a, a cheerleader like um, with my team, you know, getting getting on the oh, phone right. and, and going through oh, that that's awesome. that journey. So, uh, yes, to your question, um, I think we're we're looking at all of that. We have a, a work working group that's uh, uh, aligned with ESPN because the show mm-hmm. uh, and and how we present the show for the virtual engagement on air, online, um, social will, will come a lot a lot from the content being being generated by ESPN and we're looking at all those things uh, how do we um, you know do we have the LED boards with the fans do you have some cutouts uh, do you, you know right. 24,000 seats are we going to uh, tarp some of those off to improve uh, how, how it dress looks them up, dress yeah. them up uh, sound is obviously a big one you know the hear me cheer yes. app or others where actually you know fans can be screaming into their iPhones and that is being uh, pumped into the stadium or in. So, um, all of those things are being, being worked on, but they are also an opportunity for a traditional sport like us. Um, we don't, Mm. we don't change, we don't tend to innovate uh, that much. The U S open prides itself on innovation. Um, so it may be new camera angles that we haven't been able to use before because, uh, they would have been seat kills. Um, and, uh, that's normally where we would be generating revenue. So I'm actually quite excited about this, opportunity uh to see ultimately what uh, what our team creates yeah have you ever done is as a u.s open have you have used vr already is it something you've looked at before well we have not used vr no. we right. we've, we've dabbled with it idea. dabbled with it and uh i've always dreamt of the 360 you know to have that right. um courtside seat like there's nothing like courtside exactly. seats in any sport exactly while tennis is off the charts and that's yes. what, you know, seeing tennis live is an exceptional experience, not just the complete offering of, of the entertainment that we talked about earlier, but you can really see and hear and feel the power and the spin and the athleticism. Sometimes sport via uh, television doesn't give you that same appreciation. Absolutely. And I have never in my 30-plus uh, year career ever had to give anyone their money back because they came to tennis, to tennis, they maybe didn't see that star they hoped they were seeing, but they saw unbelievable world-class tennis, and they just had a new appreciation for the athleticism of the athletes. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It, it's uh, and I think it's to some degree for every sport. Sure. Live is just so different, um, and and that's why VR and other things like this, which bring it a little closer to that actual live experience, is so exciting. I, I love that uh, technology. We'll maybe we'll have another conversation about that uh, next time here. Okay. Um, but we need to unfortunately wrap it up. Uh, really, I, I could keep talking with you uh, for another hour. Um, but uh, what I'd love to hear from you, maybe as sort of your parting words to us. Um, as you said, you've been 30 years now in, in the world of tennis. Where do you see the next 30? Um, with you know esports coming on strong, you know the younger generation maybe less inclined to go and swing rackets or other sports. Where do you see it? Uh, where do you think uh, the world will be heading there? Well, again, if uh, we we go back to to David Stern. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, when my in my youth, uh, early days of professional career, I was ravenous to read about um, the NBA and learn from him. And and later in my mm-hmm. career, um, I had the privilege to to get to know him a little bit and 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 be in my corner when when things were going tough uh, on on some geopolitical issues and uh, world leaders, um, you know, with racist and sexist comments against uh, uh, some of my athletes. So. Right. He always was an external visionary, and you build the product based on your fans. A tennis needs to get there. We're an insular sport. We don't really build our product for fans, and I do hope that ultimately we can, with, with new leaders, and, and uh, we can have be visionary 
uh, to be externally focused to compete in the sport and entertainment industry because we're going to need to because it is highly competitive and will only get more competitive. Um, Absolutely. And so esports, digital, uh, we haven't cracked the code yet, and we know that is a hard industry uh, to play in. We know gamers are an entirely different profile than those who um, attend live sport. The one area of opportunity, you know, I think when when uh, was it, it was Nintendo brought out Wii Tennis at the beginning yes. or Pong, <laughs> right? Tennis was yep. was a primary, and then mm. um, so we know there's a foundation there for it, uh, and you know how so how do we optimize it? And we just as a sport haven't got there yet. We kind of talked about it and dabbled, um, wow. and I look at it also possibly from a participation perspective because. The USCA is the national sport governing body. U.S. Open is right. the means to the end. How do we we live in the physical world for youth and get them active, but also there is just the reality that they're in the in the virg- the digital world. And so, with AI technology, um, can we teach them how to actually how to play tennis? They can actually have their physical lesson with their coach, and then return home and uh, with gamification actually learn how to hit that forehand through AI technology and play right. against their friends. Uh, because there's that's ultimately what, what eSports is, right? It's, it's gaming Correct. and social yep. community on uh, the virtual platform. So it's figuring out, and the technologies are there. I just, I just don't think we've 100% optimized them. Look, we, we look at the Olympic Games, looking at eSports, uh, colleges or yep. eSports sponsorship. We will. We'll we'll go there. It's just we're not leading in that in that area. It's going to be very very fascinating. But one thing we can't lose: youth need to be physically active for their health, not yes. you know not just to play sport, but it, it helps with their with their physical health, their mental health, their emotional health, and their ability to be good citizens because they have to learn uh, teamwork and socialization. Yes. Uh, cooperation, and those are all of the the intangible skills that we need uh, with our future leaders. We will be a more robotic society, but robots have one thing: they they don't feel, and they will never be able to replace the emotional intelligence um, that humans will have. And sport, um, and activity, and music, things that uh, are quite physical. We just need our youth to be be doing that. Um, so that's fundamental. Absolutely. And those are great final words there. Stacy. thank you so much for the hour here. I loved it. I enjoyed it. Uh, I wish you all the best. Um, and I do hope the U.S. Open will happen. Um, unlikely that I'll be there this year, but uh, I will cheer from the sidelines from here in Asia. Uh, and we'll watch you. And as I said, wish you and your team all the best and uh, looking forward to connecting again in the future. Thank you, Marcus. And thanks for everything you've done uh, You know, for our sport during COVID. You too have been a leader reaching out and sharing um, um, across across the globe. So uh, thank you for that as well. Yeah, thank you. We, we all do our part. We're so. all doing our part. Exactly. Well, exactly. Have a great uh, morning there in New York City. Okay. I'll talk Take to you care. soon. Cheers. Thank you. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Luer Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Luer. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.